0: mute your uh, Zooms. I will uh, give our, Bob's got the thing going. Yeah. So good morning. This is Sunday, May 31st. We are uh, plowing through our study from Romans 5 to 8 called the Reign of Life. We have taken a slight diversion down uh, Indwelling Sin Lane Learning more in depth about indwelling sin from which in Jesus Christ we have been freed from its tyranny, not its presence. Yes, from its penalty, not its presence, and therefore we need to know the nature of the enemy that we're at war with. Uh, If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a whole new relationship to sin. We're all born in union with Adam. That means we are at war with God and at peace with sin, but through the spoils of Jesus Christ the benefits of what he has done for us our salvation completely outside of us done for us apart from us through jesus if by faith you are united to jesus christ now you have a new relationship to god and sin you're at peace with god through jesus christ that's how paul begins romans 5:1 and goes on to 8:1 there's no condemnation for those in christ jesus so you're at peace with god and correspondingly at war with sin Uh, One definition of a Christian is a Christian is a person who is now at war with sin, battling indwelling sin, woke up this morning at war with sin because sin's at war with you, and you will battle sin until the day you die. This is what Christians do. They battle indwelling sin. There's a fight going on within us. And we started the handout on indwelling sin with the premise, you cannot defeat an enemy you don't understand. So we did an in-depth look at the nature of sin Now we're looking at the nature of temptation. How does sin get the better of us? So hopefully you've gone to the um, the webpage, the the Wallace webpage, where it says join us, and you click there. There's not only a link, obviously, that you found for this meeting, but there's a handout associated with it. The handout is called Temptation. We're working from 1 Corinthians 6, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 6, and we're on page 3 of the handout. More on that in, in a second. Let me pray for us as we... Look at God's Word. Our gracious and holy and most merciful and great and wonderful Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that it is a gift from your hand, as is our salvation in Jesus Christ, your glorious and precious Son. And you've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who seals us with your ownership, who in us becomes our teacher and uh, leads us into all truth, and shows us Jesus and shows us our sin. Holy Spirit, we rely on you now to use the word of God to convict us, to help us, to comfort us, to inform our thinking, to inflame our affections, that in looking to Christ, we might love him and be like him and bring glory to him in all that we think, say, and do. Thank you that we are your precious, treasured possession. Commit this class to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Don't forget now to hit your mute buttons, folks. If you're joining us, don't forget to hit your mute button, lower left-hand corner of your Zoom uh, window. So the outline is temptation. The text we're looking at is from 1 Corinthians 10. I'll read it again for us, beginning at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. What's the assumption? Evil's going to be put in front of us, Will be tempted to desire it just like Israel in the wilderness did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to drink and eat and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, again, this assumes we're going to be tempted. uh, He will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We are surrounded by idols without and within. Here's the call to flee them. So if you'll look on page three of this handout, it's the page that has at the top, everything will come to light. Scroll down to B. What can we infer from this text? And we're picking up at point six. So we're, we're looking at this text from 1 Corinthians 10, and we're flying over it, and we're trying to draw out of it as much as we can. And, and uh, using this text, what do we infer about temptation and its nature? So point six is this. It is not a sin to be tempted If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you become aware in your heart of uh, a temptation to something that your conscience tells you is not right. To do something or not do something that your conscience is telling you. So you're being tempted. It's held out in front of you. It is not a sin to be tempted. Look at uh, what Hebrews 4.15 tells us about Jesus. Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, Yet without sin, there's an allusion to the perfect, flawless purity of Jesus Christ. He had to be a flawless, spotless Lamb of God to be sacrificed in our place for us. Flawless. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Whatever things tempt you also tempted Jesus. Stunning, isn't it? Every kind of sin, as it were, came Jesus' way. That means he is able and he is willing to rescue strugglers in their temptations. You can be certain in the face of temptation that if you call on Jesus for help, you will receive it. When you read through the Psalms, for example, and we're often confronted constantly with David's cry for deliverance, deliver me. And it's often uh, a, a plea to be delivered from his physical earthly enemies you may not have physical earthly enemies you're crying for deliverance from. But when you read those, make them your own pleas to the Lord for deliverance from sin, for deliverance from temptation, for deliverance from those things that would draw you out of fellowship with the Lord. Look at Hebrews two eighteen on the handout. For because Jesus himself had suffered when tempted. So this wasn't easy for Jesus. There was suffering involved. For Jesus, He is able to help those who are being tempted. He lacks no resources in his arsenal of grace to supply what you need when you're being tempted. That's really great news. No wonder Peter would write in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. How does he know? He was tempted in the same kinds of trials. So, next page, think about it. Does God want you to sin? Of course not. So by all means, he will supply what is necessary for you and me to live for his glory. God is more committed to us living for his glory than we ever will be. So there is all grace, all mercy, all power at our disposal in the Lord to be accessed in the face of temptation. And it tells you that we're, you and I are falling and we're aware of our sin. Apparently, we did not access that grace that is available to us. More than you need to stand in the face of any temptation, Jesus right there saying, I understand, I get it. That tempted me as well. Number seven, God does not tempt us. This is straight out of James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now you might say, no, wait a minute, we know Jesus is God, and we just read in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted. With respect to his humanity, Jesus was tempted. And so James is on firm ground, basically telling us about the character of God. God can never be seduced into being anything other than he is. Righteous, just, Pure, sinless. We can be sure his character is constant from eternity into all eternity. And so God doesn't allow, uh, God doesn't tempt you to sin. But clearly in his providence, he allows trials, he allows temptations to come our way. Obviously, because they're there, and we know God is sovereign over everything. But he does that to test our faith. And we can be sure in all of these situations. Whatever the temptation, whatever the trial, it is to drive us to Jesus, to show us how much we need Jesus, to show us how weak we are, to cast our vision upon Jesus, uh, and to, 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 to disavow ourselves of our self confidence. Point eight We are particularly weak and vulnerable when we think we're strong. Verse 12 Therefore, let anyone who thinks, Uh, he stands, take heed, lest he fall. It's best to start, I say, every day with an acute sense that I will blow it if left to myself and therefore cast ourselves upon grace and his power. We should see ourselves as easily seduced. We should see ourselves that way. So think about the different things that tempt you. When you get up in the morning, one of your first thoughts should be, If left to myself, I'll get drawn away into that. If God doesn't rescue me, I'll slip into that. If there isn't a a greater vision in my heart for something greater, I will easily be seduced into sin, into doing what is displeasing to the Lord and simply pleasing to myself. So we should see ourselves as easily seduced. Here's one way to think of yourself. My strengths are too weak for me. My weaknesses are too strong for me. Therefore, replete, desperate of myself, I look to Jesus. Uh, most of you, some of you have heard me teach on marriage, and I say that one of the best ways to begin the day in a marriage is to throw your feet on the floor and look to the Lord and say, Lord, if left to myself, I will ruin this relationship. My pride, my selfishness, my pettiness, my demandedness, my need for whatever it is, control, for being right, for for being approved. These things will ruin my marriage if I'm left to myself. And there flee to Jesus, and there is grace for all. Grace always flows downhill. It goes to the needy. It goes to the desperate. It goes to those who are hungry, who are opening their mouths and say, "God, fill me with Your Spirit, lest I ruin all the relationships in my life." That's a good way to start the day. I'm weak. He is strong. Here's a case study from Galatians chapter 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's exactly what love would do. Because we know that sin hurts people and it offends God. So when someone is caught in a transgression, we're called to move in pity and compassion, in gentleness, because people are particularly vulnerable when they're caught in sin. And when when, uh, Paul uses the phrase, you who are spiritual, he's not assigning a special class of Christians like, that's just for the elders, it's just for the deacons, it's just just for the hyper-spiritual people, it's just for the pastors. No, he's referencing back in the chapter 5, where he calls us to be walking in the power of the Spirit, by whom we are assailing the desires of the flesh that are at war within us, and we're people that are consciously seeking to bear the fruit of the Spirit, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, Self-control. Those are the you who are spiritual. We're living our lives that are that, that are self-consciously under the power of the Spirit. We're people waking up in the spirit of Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. That is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. We want to be people under the control of the Spirit. Intoxicated by the Spirit. Dominated by the Spirit of grace and glory. The Spirit of truth. The Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of gentleness. The Spirit of humility. So in that Spirit we're then able to correct gently those who are called a transition, and a transgression. Notice then, Paul says this, keep watch on yourself. Why? Lest you too be tempted. So when we move into someone else's life to deal with their sin, we're dealing with people as people seeking to be filled with the Spirit, particularly a spirit of gentleness, because we ourselves are those who experience God's gentleness with us, God's kindness towards us, every moment of every day God is gentle God is kind God is not relating to us in terms of justice in terms of what we deserve no God's relating to us His mercy His steadfast love is new every morning His mercy has never come to an end that's the air I breathe as a redeemed Christian and so Paul says keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted what would tempt you in that situation. Well I just say parenthetically it's not clear whether we would be tempted by that particular sin that the person's caught in. Right? That person's caught in this sin. Be careful. You're just as vulnerable with respect to that sin. Or Paul is saying keep watch on yourself that you in pride would tell yourself, well I would never do that. No, if Jesus was tempted by every sin just as we are, the same is true for us. So maybe uh, you're dealing with somebody who's caught in a trespass, and you go, well, it's okay to say I've never been tempted by that, but the truth is you could be tempted by that. And parents, when you're dealing with your little rebellious sons and daughters of Adam, and you see this rebellion coming out, and their wanton disregard of your authority, remember, you're that way in God's eyes too. And that creates in us a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of patience, a spirit of understanding. And we want to treat our children and discipline them in the same way God loves and disciplines us. Okay, number nine. Sometimes the power of the flesh is a source of temptation. And here I reference Jesus in Gethsemane when uh, it's written for us in Matthew 26. Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. What did he have in mind there? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Jesus is saying, I know you guys in your hearts are with me. You love me. You're on my side. You stuck with me. But it's the end of the day and we've had a big meal and we're tired and you're going to be tempted to fall asleep. That, and that's why Jesus comes and he finds them sleeping. You're still sleeping. You're still sleeping. So there's just... Uh, the And it, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, think about when you're particularly weak and vulnerable to certain kinds of sins, is it because you lack sleep? Is it because you're hungry? Don't we all tend to be kind of grumpy and critical when we're hungry? Have you ever found yourself out at a restaurant and the service is really slow and you start bounding your figurative fists on the table? Why don't they do? Why don't they do? Of course, that's a first world problem, isn't it? To have slow service at a nice restaurant. But anyway, when, when when we're hungry, we get more grumpy. When we're tired, we can be uh, slip into different kinds of sins, etc. When we get in a hurry, when we get impatient, whatever. So um, so the point is, sometimes the power of the flesh is a source of temptation. Paul alludes to the power of sexual temptation to that in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality. Uh, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband He's, and he says, right, it's better to marry than to burn if you have strong sexual desire the thing to do about it is not engage in sexual desire immorally it's to get married and then enjoy that gift on the terms God has given to us so sometimes the power of the flesh is a source of temptation, You've got to know your own body well as it were, as it were to, uh, there's one, honey uh, to, uh, to fight that. Number ten. That was a, sorry, for any of you who may be wondering, Janice pointed out that I used the phrase, as it were, a lot of times in my sermon recently, un- unconsciously to me. So, I, I'm just aware of the first one today. Is that the first one or the second one? <laughs> first? Who knows? Who cares? Okay. Number ten. Temptation is desiring evil. Look at verse six. That we might desire evil evil as they did. I've got a case study for you. The Bible's full of case studies on this. And in fact, this is is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10. He's saying, look at the people of God in the Old Testament. There are people. They're the people of God. The people elect of God. The people God has saved. The people God has brought out of bondage, bondage into the glory and freedom of relationship with himself. That's what it means to be a Christian. Out of bondage to sin into the glory of being in relationship with God. Um, and, and so the Israel is a case study in this text you find lots of case studies in the book of Proverbs uh, incidentally I just want to say reading Proverbs 31 this morning God has blessed me to be married to a Proverbs 31 woman when I read through here I see my precious wife Janice described in Proverbs 31 for whom I'm incredibly grateful um, so look at Proverbs 21:25. here's a case study the desire of of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor all day long he craves and craves but the righteous gives and does not hold back so if if, if on the surface of it I said to you what does the sluggard desire? it's often tempting to say nothing he's just kind of a blob the sluggard doesn't engage in life the sluggard for whatever reason is just sitting on his or her hands and doing nothing this verse is showing you that even when we're tempted to do nothing, that's driven by desire. All our behaviors, I'll show you in a second, is driven by desire. So the desire of the slugger kills him, and that raises what question. Well, what desire is driving the slugger that is ending in death, the absence of spiritual vitality? His hands refuse to labor. So in the face of work, there's something going on in his heart and his thinking that is refusing to go to work. This is, this is one of the manifestations of the sluggard. All day long, he craves and craves. So what is the sluggard craving? What is the sluggard craving? Certainly not employment and the benefits from employment. And then you have this contrast here. The righteous gives and does not hold back. So because the sluggard isn't doing the work God's called him to do, fulfilling Genesis 2, the cultural mandate, Working as God himself as a worker. Mirroring on earth our God who is industrious, as it were. That's part of what work is all about. God, uh, 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 the person who is industrious, has some income to share with other people. That's one of the benefits, one of the blessings, one of the purposes of work. To have income to share with other people. Well, the sluggard craves and craves. So there's a lot going on in the sluggard's heart that is keeping the sluggard from going to work. They're craving something. Maybe they're craving the avoidance of failure. Maybe they're craving whatever it is, sleep. There's, there could be multiple dimensions to what's going on in the heart. So the, the point is, when you're tempted to, to not to do something God wants you to do, or to do something God doesn't want you to do, back it up, look at your heart, and ask yourself, What is it I'm craving that is competing with doing the thing God wants me to do? These things are the heart level. Now, I want you to see my little diagram here on the board. I've got over here that eventually we act or we speak in a certain way. And obviously we're concerned here with speaking or acting in a sinful way. We tend to think that we do sinful things or speak in an ungodly way based on how we feel. I'm feeling lonely, so I've been shocked. I'm feeling depressed, so I eat too much. I'm feeling rejected, so I drink too much. Whatever it is. We tend to connect uh, our sinful actions and thoughts to the way we feel. I feel slighted, so I'm going to be critical of that person. Condemn that person. There's actually more going on to that. I think an extrapolation from this verse is to see that our feelings are a reflection of our desires. Remember, the sluggard craves and craves. You could could substitute any sin in there. for for, uh, Take out the word sluggard and substitute any sin in there. The, The critical person craves and craves. The proud person craves and craves. The materialistic person craves and craves. The arrogant person craves and craves. So then the question is, what is driving this? So you have desire, craving, but the point I want to make here is that what stands behind desire, what's at the heart of desire, is your thinking. You have an idea, you have a notion, you have a cognition about what is best for you, what will give you satisfaction, what will fulfill you. You have a, an idea, a picture in your mind, a vision, these are cognitions. This is why the New Testament, when it it calls us to, to righteous living, frequently calls us to engage our mind on what is true. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed in the spirit of your mind. Philippians 4, let your mind think on the things that are right, good, lovely, and true. Colossians Three. And Dory, as I told you uh, last week, Dory, Dory will take two weeks at the end of June to unpack Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Paul begins, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. So set your mind on the things above. And so the mind is really all about your thinking about the life you want that will satisfy you. It's an idea, it's a notion of what it is that uh, you think is best for you. So we crave then... Whatever, whatever, uh, it's kind of like a worldview, really, isn't it? Our cravings come out of, they they function to, um, to bring about a fulfillment of what we think is best for us, however we fashion it. And that's why we need the Word of God every day to constantly challenge this notion we have in ourselves about what's best for us. It's one of the reasons why I like the book of Proverbs because the book of Proverbs was wit- written to instruct inexperienced people, children, a father and a mother, mod- uh, discipling children who don't have experience, who, who lack uh, the benefit of, um, you know, the road of hard knocks, as it were. We- Proverbs, Proverbs uh, tells us the way the world is wired and how we find joy and peace and the fear of the Lord and their things. Okay, well, you, I won't go down that bunny trail any longer. I do want you to know when we're finished at ten, I have the privilege of joining our youth. Matt Beckman has asked me to join our youth at ten on a Zoom chat, uh, and I get to do a little advertisement with our youth about why uh, Proverbs is so important. So, yay! I get to do that. Very grateful to Matt for his work with our youth on Proverbs for this for this month. All right, that makes sense. So, so at, at the heart of any sin is really a thought about what is good for you. And we want to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We want our thoughts to conform what the Bible tells us is good for us. What the Bible tells us is true humanity. What the Bible tells us is the way to find peace and joy and, and, um, and happiness, which is in terms of righteousness. All right, let's look at number 11. Satan tempts us to sin. Seems like uh, Christianity 101, 1 Thessalonians 3.5. We have an allusion to this. Paul writes to this young church for this reason. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So you kind of have to read between the lines what exactly Satan in that context would be tempting them. But ultimately, what's Satan's ultimate temptation? It's to draw you out of fellowship with God. It's to destroy your faith. Think about the armor of God. Take up the shield of faith, which which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. We ought to wake up every morning assuming that Satan is drawing his bow and shooting at us missiles that are designed to burn our trust in God. Our love for God, our resting in God, our belief in his goodness, our, our craving for his precepts, uh, along the lines of Psalm 119. You want to see a person profoundly addicted to the word of God? Read Psalm 119. You, you, we ought to assume that Satan is trying to destroy that. And I think that was one of his concerns, that because the Thessalonians were being persecuted, Satan would use that to cause these people to, uh, to turn away from the newfound faith in Jesus Think about Peter's uh, situation, his famous confession of Christ's Messiahship at Caesarea, uh, recorded for us in Matthew 16, 23. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. This is when Jesus, uh, Peter gets it right. Who do, you, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of God. Ding, 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 ding. Good Peter, go to the head of the class. You've got it right. Although Jesus is very quick to remind Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. The only reason you know who I am, it isn't in you, Peter. It's the grace of God. It's the sovereign revelation of God. That's how we come to know who God, Jesus is. And whenever, oftentimes when Jesus reveals himself, He tells us what he came to do. The Son of Man is going to die and be raised from the dead. Peter hears this. He doesn't quite get it. He doesn't want a Messiah who's going to be treated badly, as a Messiah who has to die for our sins. And so he says, this will never happen to you, Jesus. And this kind of thinking, Jesus ultimately says, is demonic, to have a Savior who doesn't die for our sins. So he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, a stumbling block, a scandal on you're not setting your mind on the things of God, on the things of man. Well, that's a really helpful, functional definition of giving into temptation. We're setting our mind on the things of man. That's where Satan would direct us to the things of man. He doesn't need to direct us to himself. He just needs to direct us to the things of man. They're all around us. It's Everybody's doing it. It must be okay. So, no, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. And that's why we need God's Word. God's Word reveals to us the things of God. God's real Word reveals to us. It cuts through the BS of the way the world would have us think. That's why we need God's Word. Constantly reading it, soaking it, hearing it taught, which is why you're on this Zoom call. You want to be taught the Word of God. He's given you an appetite for it. You know you're desperate for it, as desperate as I am for it. So that's why uh, <clears throat> uh, Paul in Ephesians 6. Tells us to stand firm by taking up the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. How is the devil scheming against you? Maybe different the way he's scheming against so and so, the way he's scheming against your kids or your grandchildren or church leaders or whatever. How is the devil scheming against you? We have all the resources necessary for this battle, our battle against not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places in Christ. Satan tempts us to sin. That's, uh, not a, 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 that's not a surprise. Number 12. What drives desire, this is actually a recapitulation of the tangent I went on a little earlier, what drives desire is what you tell yourself you need to be satisfied, happy, whole, secure, significant. And uh, <clears throat> this is the nature of idolatry. I'm going I'm to come back to it in Romans 8. Uh, we'll do a, an extensive teaching on idolatry, we'll probably get to that in 2022, 2023, who knows but what drives desire is what you tell yourself you need to be satisfied, happy whole, significant, and at the heart of that there's always a lie, and the lie is this, I cannot be satisfied or filled without God and the addition of something else, so even if you're religious, God is one thing, but I need more than God in order to be satisfied, so think about the logic of the Ten Commandments what's the first commandment? No other gods but me. Ultimately, all you need is me. I'm God. No other gods. And so, um, so idolatry is having another god. Then you go to the Tenth Commandment. What is the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet. Coveting is ultimately an expression of dissatisfaction with God himself and God's provisions. It's a lack of contentment. Contentment, being satisfied with God himself, his promises, His provisions, everything God uh, has pledged to give us in His grace. And so coveting is a form of having another God. And this is is what wraps the Ten Commandments together as it were. And in between, we see ways of finding life apart from God's ways. Rejecting His authority, the Fifth Commandment, killing other people, adultery, stealing, lying, etc. So if you look there on 12, this is idolatry, serving our own interests on our own terms. Paul writes, Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a direct quote from uh, Exodus 32, the situation of the golden calf. These happen to be activities also common. To the idol worship of Corinth. So Paul is is writing in a very specific context to believers in Corinth who were tempted in this way, and he's saying, Oh, wonder of wonders, the idol worship of Corinth looks a lot like what tempted Israel in the wilderness in the situation with the golden calf. And you see, you see in that story the absolute absurdity of thinking and reasoning apart from God's truth and God's revelation. Right, they dumped all their gold and silver. So- when, when Moses came and said, what are you doing? What is up with this? They say, oh, we put all this gold and silver into the fire and out popped this calf. Come on! How crazy is that? That's how crazy we are. That's how absurd sin is. That's how irrational, how foolish, how stupid, how contrary to the facts indulging sin is in the face of the glory of God, in the face of the pleasure of knowing God. In his presence there is fullness of joy, and whose his right hand, pleasures forever. The end of Psalm 16. So that's why he says in verse 14, flee idolatry. That verb is a present imperative. It's a command. That's what imperative means. It's a command. Present tense in the Greek conveys an ongoing, habitual lifestyle. Keep on habitually, continually, without ceasing, fleeing idolatry. Notice that just assumes we're constantly confronted with the temptation to give in to our idols. Hedonism, self-indulgence, living for pleasure, if even under religious trappings. So 13, uh, temptation is the offer of some pleasure at the expense of true humanity and God's glory. Temptation indulges, that's Paul's word in verse 8, an urge to transgress God's law, sins of commission. God's law says, hey, in order to be human, stay within these bounds. Transgression is exceeding the bounds. Going beyond them. Stepping up, you're thinking of an athletic competitive field. Stepping out of bounds. Okay, plays over. You can't, you can't compete that way. We can do all the competing we want, all the living we want, staying within the wonderful parameters God has given us for our good, for his glory. You can never hurt yourself staying within the parameters God gives you. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Sweet, it's like honey to us. And when we get into Romans 7, we'll see how Paul esteems the law of God, uh, knowing that it's, it's, it can't save us. It can prescribe the way of salvation. It has no power to do it. That's why we need Jesus, keeping it in our place. So temptation is the offer of some pleasure at the expense of true humanity and God's glory. It indulges, it transgresses God's law or fails to comply with it. That's sins of omission. He says we must not indulge in sexual immorality. That's That's engaging the gift of sexuality on our terms versus God's. This is a reference to Numbers 25, 1 through 9. And we can make, go, go to one more point, which is 14. Uh, and sort of an, another conclusion. Therefore, desires left unchecked will carry us away into sin. Uh, this amazing graphic portrayal of temptation in James chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin... And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It's kind of the language of sexuality and birth, isn't it? So isn't isn't James saying uh, temptation, we give, uh, death comes acting contrary to God's ways when we're we're desiring something and we act on it, we give into it. Think Think about the Most of you probably know the story of David and Bathsheba. David, we're told, it's the time of year when kings go off to war. David's in Jerusalem, so that's the first—that's the first hint that there's something wrong with this picture. David should be leading his soldiers in battle. He's back in Jerusalem. He's on his rooftop, fine so far. He looks down, and there's Bathsheba bathing naked. Most in Jewish lore, Bathsheba is seen as a terrible person. That they, they understand that Bathsheba's coming on to David. That she's doing this deliberately, knowing David can see it. That's not the point of the discussion. Here's the point: David is up here. Maybe he's just taking in the sunset. That's a good thing. Glory of God revealing creation. He sees Bathsheba. So far, he can't help it. He notices her. He might even say, "She's beautiful." I'm not. Uh, that's not. That's just a fact. She's beautiful. At that point, what does David need to do? Needs to be aware of the temptation in his own heart for the observation of that beauty to take his heart into desiring that beauty. So David sees Bathsheba, he should say, she's beautiful, but Lord, I'm married. And turn away, go back inside. Go study his Bible. Go do something else. Instead, he looks upon her So far we're okay, he sees she's beautiful, and then he begins to desire. And then desire leads to action. Bring her up here, I'm going to sleep with her. That seems to be a picture of what's going on in what James is talking about here. Again, it's not a sin to be tempted. And what happens is when we we get into the lure of temptation, we're enticed by our own desire. He published it and said, oh, she's beautiful, I, I can feel my heart wanting her. That's not a good thing. I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to go inside and pray for her, and I'm going to send a messenger down to tell her uh, to put her clothes on. Okay, 1 Timothy 6:9. Here's the case study: Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, you couldn't get a more sober warning against the desire to be rich. You can be rich and not be tempted this way. God may choose to bless you financially. Proverbs says it's the blessing of the Lord that makes wealth. Much wealth wealth is in the house of the righteous. Wealth in and of itself is not the problem. It is the desire. And again... Think about it. What's driving the desire? It's a thought. If I have that amount of money, I will be. Fill in the blank. I'll be secure. I'll be popular. I'll be desirable. I'll be happy. Whatever it is, there's a thought, a conviction, an idea of what's best for myself driving the desire to be rich. Notice it's not wrong to desire to have your needs met. Uh, Proverbs 30. Yesterday, hopefully you read it. Here's the prayer, Lord, don't give me wealth, don't give me poverty, just give me middle income, I'm just middle, middle class income, I just want to have enough to live on because if I don't have enough, I'll be tempted to steal, I'll profane your name if I steal, to, or if I have too much, I'll be tempted to be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Money has this effect on our desires. <clears throat> so there's the case study. Those who desire to be rich, that's the problem, fall into temptation, <clears throat> desire leading into temptation, a snare, and, you, uh, and into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Whew, what a warning. <clears throat> One last case study. Paul, in 2 Timothy 4.10, makes this uh, statement sort of in a litany of updates on people that have been involved in this ministry. He says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And you say, well, who is Demas? We don't know, but here's what we do know. He had already alluded to Demas in Colossians 4. And and his concluding remarks at the end of Colossians, written prior, obviously, to 2 Timothy, Demas is is alluded to as a companion of Paul's. Now, X number of years later, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's not a good thing, is it? What happened to Demas. How did he go from being a faithful companion of Paul's, worthy of being in the eternal word of God in Colossians 4, now to being a person who's a case study, who's deserted, what, the most famous missionary that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, because he's in love with this present world. I've got a, I've got a sermon based on this called, what, Where in the World is Demas? And it basically makes the point, Demas didn't fall in love with the world overnight. It was a serious series of many decisions, a series of failure to fight indwelling sin, a failure to take temptation seriously. He allowed his vision of what was good for him in his heart to change, to be modified irrespective of the word of God. That created desires, that created a way of living that ends up walking away from the faith. Pretty serious case study. Alright, we'll stop there. We'll pick up next time at number 15. Let me pray for you all. Lord, thank you for My brothers and sisters, for their appetite for the word of God, I pray this study will have helped us love you more, be more sober and serious in our fight with our own desires, be more zealous and diligent uh, to seek the word of God as that power from on high that is powerful to change us and to redirect our uh, thoughts about what is good for us. Thank you for Jesus, who is with us in the fight, Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that nothing in heaven and earth can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we love you and praise you and pray that we'll now worship you in this next hour with all of our hearts bringing glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. Good to see you, so to speak. and Thank you, uh, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you very much. Have a good week.